The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 1 and 2, and verse 13 through 21. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays at the heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, who rock in their uprightness. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land, and shall inherit my holy mount. And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and holy spirit, to receive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit will grow faint before me because and the breath of life that I made. Because in the inquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Christopher. When I was sitting over there waiting and the kids were dismissed, one of the kids walked by and kind of gave me this look. He looked me up and down, he looked at my Bible and my notes and everything and, and was like, kind of looking at me like, dude, you're in the wrong place, man. Um, if you think I'm in the wrong place, I really, uh, I'm jumping back and forth this morning. My name is Stacy Croft, I'm not Scott Sauls. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, but good to see you this morning. Uh, Scott and Russ and I do this every now and then to um, give one another just a time to rest. And uh, so I've hopped from here to Music Row, which they bring greetings to you. I'm the lead pastor for our Music Row location and, uh, and then have come back. Uh, and I'm not in the wrong place. Uh, <laughs> it's like, what if, what if I was? I said, like, oh no, God, I'm in the wrong location again. Uh, no, I'm here. Uh, and it's good to see you all. <laughs> Uh, just to encourage you as well, uh, an update. This may be one of the few times that we do this back and forth for a while, at least our location. In uh, September, we're going to be moving to two services, and uh, we're very excited and thankful for that, and uh, grateful to you for the way that you've uh, supported us in this location, and that's, that's the beautiful thing about our, our locations and our family together, uh, and not just the growth, but the extension of the gospel outward and the prayer and time together. So anyway, just to update and encourage you with, with that. And in some sense, in the same vein, uh, kind of a question even regarding our passage this morning. Uh, if I was to ask you what you think the like, key ingredient is 
to move our church, to move into the city, to transform things, uh, to change uh, what's around us. I wonder what you'd say. I'd probably get a litany of things. Uh, what would it be? You know, this new strategy, our vision, uh, just the gospel. What, what is that that you would hear? I was reading a couple different, um, different op-ed pieces, and one in particular was from the New York Times that talked about the quiet power of humility. Don't know uh, where this guy lands in terms of his own faith, but he mentions this. He said, over breakfast with a social psychologist I know, I asked him what the constructive contribution Christians could make to public life. And as an atheist, his friend, who finds much to admire about religion, he answered simply, humility. Totally different piece from the Wall Street Journal, not even about religion, about business. You know, how do you make a successful business? You'd find countless of these kind of articles, but this one in particular stood out. The Wall Street Journal said, the best bosses are humble bosses. After decades of screening potential leaders for charm and charisma, some employers are realizing they've been missing one of the most important traits of all, humility. In an era when hubris is rewarded on social media and in business and politics, researchers and employment experts say turning the limelight on humble people might yield better results. Humility is a core quality of leaders who inspire close teamwork, rapid learning, and high performance in their teams. So just a little note to this. The passage we just read from Isaiah, which we've been looking at for this summer, is almost like a proverb in a sense. I don't know if you caught it. We'll look at that a little bit more. But it's really saying on either end, it begins what we heard about the righteous. It ends with the wicked. And right in between is this passage that says in verse 15, this, chat, this verse says, the one who is high and lifted up, holy, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy places. Now, we would get that, right? You think righteous, wicked, who dwells. But then he says, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. If we were to ask the question, where does God dwell? If we're going to change the face of our church, Nashville, the world, that kind of thing. If you're here and you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, we could get a litany of things, but this passage is pointing to a way of life. It's saying, if you want to know the crux, the heart of the matter, what will actually transform, bring change, revival, it's where God dwells. Isn't that where we want to be? And who does he dwell with? The successful? No, he dwells with the contrite and lowly in heart. Not a word we typically use, contrite, but the derivative somewhat of being humble and lowly. But this is what Isaiah is getting at. Look, Isaiah is talking to a group of people who've been through a lot. I mean, before this, they were um, on their own, and, and before exile, which is one of the superpowers, kind of defeated them as a country and took them away from their homes. And in some sense, before that, they were saying, hey, being a, a follower of God is great. I don't know. I mean, it helps kind of our world. Maybe it helps, you know, establish economy and these kind of things. They, they, you know, God, we love God, but he's also a part of our just regular everyday stuff. Then they're exiled. They're taken out. And exile is not just, you know, removing you from your home. It's removing every security and safety you know. And then they're faced with this, what do we do now? What is our life? What, what's the crux of who we are as a people? And God is just now in Isaiah, and we're reading these chapters, showing them you're about to enter back in, you're about to be healed, revived, your land is. What is it gonna make you you? 
Why do I dwell with you? And this is what he says. Dwelling with a contrite and lowly in heart. See, if we miss that, if we miss what it means to be contrite, and yeah, there's comfort in there. If we miss those things, then we can really be off. If we miss what God is saying when he talks about being contrite and yet being comforted, we're going to look at that. We're going to see the balance. And those are the two things really out of this passage. It's very simple. Is what in the world does it mean to be contrite? Because <laughs> we don't walk around saying, you're contrite, you're contrite. We don't do that. And what does it really mean to be comforted, to know those two things? You know, when the passage begins, it begins, verse 1, the righteous man perishes and no one lays heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. You skip down to the very end of that chapter. It ends with, but the wicked are like tossing sea, and for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. You know, you see this again, like I said, a pitting of the righteous and wicked. Very similar to proverbial things we read in Proverbs and in other places in the Scripture where you talk about the righteous and wicked, and it's easy for us when we read righteous and wicked to talk about, oh, this is like making bad choices. Those are like the good people, and then these are the bad people. But that's not actually what righteous and wicked are discussing here. Righteous and wicked are talking about a way of life. It's a wholeness. It's not just a choice you make. It's not just a mistake you, 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 you have. It's actually a whole way of life. And, and as said, pitted right in between there, right in the middle. If you're going to ask, what's the righteous and wicked and how do we live? How does, where does God dwell with his people? He says, the high and holy one, right? The one who inhabits eternity? I mean, and yet, dwells with the lowly and contrite at heart. Contrite is a word that we, if you look it up on your phone or something like that, you would see it means penitent, maybe sorrowful. But the Hebrew word unpacks it in a lot more depth. A lot of times when we say Hebrew or Greek, you're like, oh, nerd alert. Yes, it's cool. But we don't just say it for that reason. We, as preachers, use Hebrew and Greek to help talk to you about the fact that there is some really in-depth language. What it actually means in Hebrew is a crushing. It is just a tangible, physical, spiritual, emotional crushing of being battered and beaten down and totally taken advantage of in life. That's the Hebrew language. It means you've been totally stripped away and crushed by everything around you. Well, I worked, uh, we're moving offices. Uh, we, we used to office over on 8th Avenue. This reminded me when offices I've had in the past. I had an office years ago uh, on West End, uh, 2525 area across from uh, Centennial Park there. And my office was right on the street, and, and uh, mine was the first one uh, on the first floor. And so we'd often have people come by, uh, and if people came to the front door, I was often the one that had to hop up and you know, open it up and let them in. And because of where we were situated on West End, we had a lot of people who uh, were struggling financially or maybe were homeless or poor. would come down the street and would knock on, rap on our door and say, is there any help you can provide and those kind of things. One day, I was sitting uh, just in my office as usual. I heard this tap on the door, but it didn't sound like a normal tap. I went to the door, I opened it up, and there was a man with his cane and who was blind. He said, hey, I'm trying to find P.F. Chang's, which is about a block away. And uh, I'm, I'm looking for this job because I'm, I have an interview. Can you help me find that? And as I kind of stood there for a moment and I just observed him and um, saw this man and said, sure, I'm happy to help shut my door. And 
said, can you lead me down? I, I, he put his hand on my shoulder and I walked him down. We talked, very small talk, nothing huge. Notice he had shorts on. You could see the scratches, the gouges, even the scars from him running into things. And as he was walking and I'm leading him down the street thinking, man, this is such an amazing thing that God allowed me to meet this guy and walking him in and then helping him meet whoever he was to meet in terms of needing financial assistance and this new job, whatever he had. It just reminded me, it shows me, it pointed to me and it does now of what this passage is getting at. Is that he was leading me, but really he was pointing me, this man who was blind was teaching me, what does it really mean to be dependent? What does it really mean to be crushed? What does it really mean to know the gouges, the marks, the scars of physically or emotionally this life? To know the crushing weight of being dependent on others, having to lead you to certain places or certain times. To know that you're financially strapped and feel the weight of that pressing on you. To be crushed is not just one single place. It's to have that weight on you and you feel it and you know it and it's tangible. It's not just some emotional thing. It's everything that you have. And the question that God is getting at here is he says when he dwells with us, these are the people he dwells with. And isn't that opposite of what you and I think? I mean, our typical thought life is God dwells with those who are successful. Like we love a comeback story, right? Oh, he's coming out of that. Yes, success. But what is God saying? He's not saying I, I, I dwell with those who have a great comeback. He's saying I dwell with those who are contrite and lowly. That's where they are. I know for so much of my life I have lived in that place. I've lived in a place where I believe if I can really put my shoulder down, if I really am successful enough, I can, I can come out from underneath that. But that's what he's not, he's, he's saying, no, 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 no. God dwells, he's with the lowly and contrite. Those who know they are crushed. The question here is, do you know what it means to be crushed? And, and, and I don't mean just simply crushed like you're going through a hard time. I mean, what the, the scriptures are saying here is not dwelling on you being crushed, but experiencing that, knowing the wreckage both in your heart, in your life, and that you create around you. Do you are you aware of that? Do you, have a, do you have your fingers on the pulse of that? Because what we tend to do often is to skip being contrite and run to comfort, or as often we can in our theological circles sometimes, is dwell in the contrite, being crushed. And we sit simply thinking, maybe you do this morning, maybe again you're revisiting church or your visitor here this morning. I often say this at, at our location as well. Maybe coming into a church for you engages you thinking, hey, this is where God dwells on my being crushed just like I do. This is where I come and I learn and I feel like he's just, this is where I kind of feel my shame and guilt and then I kind of leave and maybe there's some good message that helps me get out of it. But what this is saying is different. The state of being contrite is not dwelling on your badness. It's not dwelling in being crushed. It's holding it and knowing it. Here, here's a difference. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a great book called Spiritual Depression. Don't know if you've ever read it, but you should. It's a thick, hefty book, but there's some great takeaways in there. And one of the things he really gets at is this, what we do is this over-introspection of ourselves. 
and where we can go with this kind of idea. He says this, I suggest that we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such examination becomes the main and chief end of our life. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like if I looked at you and I go, man, you're such an eight with a, you know, with a seven wing. And we talk about that and we love that. It's great diagnosis, isn't it? But it's a little different from this. And you're like, stop tooing me, Stacy. You know, like we use it as a verb now, right? The great thing about things like Enneagram and those kind of things, they unpack, but contrition is different. What this is talking about is not dwelling in self-examination. See, what, what Lloyd-Jones is talking about, he's, he, called, he called it this, the over-dissection of the soul. Think about that picture, an over-dissection. We can get so locked up in our being crushed that we don't even realize that comfort is really much better. And some of us live in that place. Some of us live almost even identifying ourselves with being crushed rather than identifying ourselves with something else. Think about this. God is not saying that he dwells on your being crushed. He dwells with you in your being crushed. And that is a very stark difference. He's not putting his thumb on you. He's not there to point at you and say, this is why you're crushed. He's there to drink, draw you out of it in his relationship with you. And some of us are unwilling to face that. Many of us, on the other side of that, run quickly from our contrition or being crushed to comfort, right? We're like, okay, well, let, me get, let me get out from underneath. We minimize it. Or we say, I'm gonna run to this. Notice this verse right here in verse 13, 57, 13 says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. See what he's getting at? He's saying, what is the thing that when you experience the crying out of being crushed, where do you run? What's the idol? We don't use idols for us, but it could be a good thing. It could be an addiction. It could be something that you numb yourself with. It could be something that you medicate yourself with. What do you find comfort without actually sitting in contrition? Because that's what happens. If we don't actually look at what we're being contrite for and run straight to comfort, we run to things that will medicate that. We won't really look with clarity of those things. And here's how you know what they are. They blow away really quickly. My son, uh, four-year-old son, is in one of those states where he, uh, he's really picking up on the weather. And you know, he had like thunder and lightning and those kind of things, like he's really like taking it all in more. Um, because he's like, dude, that's actually really loud. That's kind of freaky that this guy lights up. I mean, you ever thought about that before? It's kind of an odd thing. One of the things he's really noticed is wind. And when the wind starts blowing, sometimes hard, sometimes not, he'll, he'll look around and he'll say, hey, that thing's gonna blow away. Do we need to go, what do we, what do, we do? And we kind of encourage him. Say, if it blows, we can go pick it up, right? But he's right, if you think about it, he's like, what do you do? This is saying, what are things that blow away? They're things that have no weight. They're things that you need to go, what, hold on to. And to pit that against what God says about himself, but he who takes refuge in me. You see the difference? You know when you're running to an idol or something that can medicate your contrition or your willingness to bow your heart in humility to see the things that really crush you and those around you, when you're actually running quickly from those to things 
that you have to really hold on to and hold down to. God doesn't need that. God never needs you to hold him down. God never needs you to bring him back. Those things in our lives that, that blow, and what a beautiful picture for us as children to say, ooh, it's gonna blow away. I need to grab onto that. That's what makes me me. That's what's gonna medicate me. That's what's gonna help me. That's gonna make me not feel my contrition or my pain. Contrition is not the same as dwelling in your pain. God doesn't do that. He doesn't wanna cover it up either. It's actually seeing it for what it really is and being wise about it. See, that's what comfort is. Comfort moves us in this way because it says comfort knowing of who we are and yet who dwells with us means there's someone who's, do you notice that, that this uh, amazing description of God? For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him is contrite and lowly of spirit. This is the same one who dwells in those places, not a different one. This is how comfort comes. It comes because the great high and lofty one mourns with us and then we are comforted because he meets us in those places. This is the New Testament parallel to when Jesus gives a sermon on the mount and he starts with this list of beatitudes, beat, 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 and one of those, actually the second one says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Those who actually engage with what mourning is actually have God meet them there in it. Do you see what this is saying? Contrition actually makes more room for love, not less. It means you're making more room for Christ to come in and address the dwelling of the things that are really there. When we minimize that, our contrition, are being crushed, we're minimizing our comfort as well. And here's what the glorious comfort is. It says in, in verse 15, what, I dwell in high and holy places and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Listen to that, the revive. Same word from revival, revive, mentioned twice. Why is it that way? Because it's, it's giving life to you know what he's saying? He's saying heart and spirit, these two words put together in the Hebrew here are actually giving a picture of spirit. It's, it's those moments, he's saying he's giving you a spirit of vigor and of coming out of. It's those moments when you're so crushed you don't want to get out of bed. When you experience physical pain or illness or relational loss that nothing gives you energy to get out of it get out of bed or to face anyone. That God revives you. That he comes into the places that you wouldn't ever think he comes and he actually comes and dwells there. This is astounding. This is not like any other ideology, philosophy or any other religion that God would actually take his place in those places where you experience that. Not just emotionally or spiritually, but physically, he comes into that. That he's, look, these verses are saying you're actually designed to experience and to know what it means to live in God. When it says revive the lowly, to revive the heart, it means come to life, come to the life you're supposed to be. 
and to, to function properly. Like, I don't know if you like summer TV. I love summer TV. I'm a total summer TV junkie. I don't know why that is. I love Shark Week. I'm one of those people. You're like blank stares. I don't really care. I love Shark Week. Um, those kind of shows, like, and, and there are also those shows, like some of those like odd sports shows. Uh, one in particular I remember uh, that I love. I haven't seen it in a while. So if you've seen this and you're on it, please come grab me after the service. Called World's Strongest Man. Have you ever heard of this thing? Crazy thing. Now we just watched, you know, CrossFit games. Before all that stuff, where these guys literally around, they would go around the country and, and their names were like Magnus, Magnus Ver Magnuson, and like Magni Magnuson, like, like different variations of Magnus, meaning, you know, huge, I guess. And they were, they were massive guys that could hardly, couldn't get their hands together, like to, you know, I'm sure if they shook your hand, it was like this. But instead of like doing pull-ups or push-ups, they would like carry Volkswagens, you know? And uh, they'd like carry a 300 pound rock and like weird stuff like that. They'd squat people. So instead they'd like put a bar on a guy like this and they'd say, okay, you've got 25 people. You know, that's just not right. Um, So one time I'm, but I loved, I couldn't get enough of it. And so this is like a 70s version or 80s. I can't remember, it was a crossover where they had the short shorts with the cool like, you know, bands on them and then the tank top member. and, um, And they lined up to do like a 40 yard dash with a, a refrigerator on their shoulder, of course, yeah. And um, the fridge had like handles, they, I guess they put on it, which should tell you this is not a normal thing because no fridge comes with handles like this. So the gun goes off, they start running down the track and the British announcer who I, was the best part, he was like, oh, they're going, they're going, you know, they're sprinting down the track. And all of a sudden, a couple seconds in, you hear this, oh, oh. And one of the guys steps and his knee goes completely the other way. Yeah, same reaction, TV did. Everybody's like, oh, oh, you know. And the, 1001, 1002, the announcer says, oh, oh, he's still going, you know. And the guy, it pans <laughs> to this guy and he's dragging this just leg with probably held together by his knee brace or something. And he's just going, he's still going down the track. Does it sound that ridiculous to you? That is a great picture of what I've tried to do in my life. When I have experienced being crushed, I actually think I should just put handles on it and go. I really do. And I know that you have too. I know that in our world, comfort means a success story. It means we need to, okay, God, this is great. This is a great religion. We talk about grace. We love this stuff. Hey, do you and I really believe this stuff? Because you know what the word revive, revival means? Revival isn't us trying to impact the city. And I pray for it, and we pray for it, and I hope you pray for it, that there's revival and change in this city because there's change in our hearts. Because you know where it comes from? The lowly and contrite. Not because we're throwing out a bunch of great things that we do. Do you know why people who are not Christians, and I hope you're here this morning and hearing this, and hold us to it, because If we aren't showing a humble, contrite heart, what's the point? Where's the gospel? It says that's where God dwells. It means he actually sets up life and home there. Not with those who think that they can do it and put their shoulder down and win by not getting crushed. It's as crazy as that story. 
And you know what changes us, and you've experienced it. And Lord willing, if you haven't, I want to ask that you do. But what it means when somebody actually heals you by meeting you in that place. In that place, it says in verse 18, one of the most profound verses, I think, in the whole thing. I have seen his ways. That is, God has seen it. He's seen your ways. He's seen my ways. He's seen their ways. But I will heal him. But I will heal him. One of the greatest conjunctions in all the Bible. But I will heal him. Do you know that when I studied this, that the commentators were confounded by that verse? You know why? Because there's no reason. There's no turning. There's no, there's no explanation further. Why does God just say, I know your ways. You're horrible. But why would God do that? Because God is expressing his incredible character, that these are the ones he dwells with, that healing comes from him coming into us. His effective presence, he comes to us where we are, he meets us. The deepest change that you and I ever, I mean, there, there are, I, I, look, I have all sorts of things I could read here. I'm just gonna throw it out for a minute. There are so many articles that you could talk about, so many psychological ways that you could learn what it's like to have somebody meet you in a place where you're crushed and what changes you. It's when they're in it with you. This is what God does when he dwells. He heals us by coming in. And how does he do it? You actually get to taste this in a moment. The reality that God tangibly, in no other place, no other ideology, philosophy, or religion actually says that the person who comes in is going to be crushed for you. Just four chapters before this, it says this in Isaiah 53.10, that it pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to crush him his own son, Jesus, the servant. It's one of the only other places that word crush is used. That it pleased God to crush. It pleased him to lay all of that that you experience onto his servant, his son, Jesus. And what would it look like if we experienced the comfort of knowing that Jesus has that? He doesn't just share it with us, he takes it all on. There's an exhibit that was going on in New York for some time. I don't know if it's still going on now, but it was, it was called A Monument for the Anxious and Hopeful. And literally it was this. These people would walk in and they would write on a card things that they felt or were struggling with and they would paste it up on the walls and that was the exhibit. And it went on for a year plus. Listen to how it was received. Thousands of visitors contributed lines like, I'm anxious because I'm afraid I'll die alone. I'm anxious because I might miss my chance to be a mom. I'm hopeful because life is beautiful and I'll feel happy soon, but I don't know. The exhibit, a monument for the anxious and hopeful, which was on view last February until early, earlier this week. It was a catalog of 
anonymous confessions, a place where people willingly expose their weaknesses and flaws. I'm anxious because I don't have a home for my boys. I've relapsed three times since becoming sober. I feel like a disappointment to everyone in my life. These more than 50,000 entries express thoughts that many people wouldn't otherwise share publicly due to fear of rejection and shame. What if, what if we believed that what we're doing here isn't just an exhibit. What a beautiful picture. What if we experienced that here? What if, what if coming to this table was that? What if you understood the fact that this table here is comfort because this is where contrition and comfort meet. The one who was crushed actually does that. You can bring every entry you have and he has taken it on. What you receive differently is you actually get to taste it. You actually get a morsel in your mouth and liquid to prove the fact that Jesus came in tangible time, space, and history with coordinates to tell you that every part of your life that's been crushed has been dealt with and you have comfort. And yet you can still hold how your life is crushed. You can still hold the reality of it because it humbles you. It's what you live in, but it's not your identity. And nor is comfort. Your identity is Christ. This is what makes you you. What if our church looked more like that exhibit? What if our church looked more like a place where people could actually come and experience that and feel that? And no, instead of a wall that they pin their entries to, they come to a table together. We share shoulder to shoulder, holding hands, laughing, singing, crying, knowing this is our comfort. That's why you can come to this table. Come to this table this morning, not because you have all the comfort you need, but you have Christ. Come to this table not because you've been crushed in every way, but you have Christ and you can experience both the reality of that and the comfort of life here at this table. I wanna invite the pastors and elders Ford who are gonna come help serve at this time, and the children to rejoin us wherever they're coming from. This is new for me, so if they come out of the ceiling, I don't know where they're coming from. But. But I also want to invite us to stand together. And we're going to read a prayer together. Let's stand. How did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. It was on that night that Jesus was betrayed, knowingly that he was going to be crushed. Not only had he received it and encountered it in the garden, but he would receive it with his friends. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, all of you. Do so in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup 
And he poured out the wine. And he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. My blood that is of the new covenant. That means that's a new relationship that you have with God through Jesus. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death, that he was actually crushed until he comes again. And you know, and I say this all the time at our location, if he's come once, oh, he's gonna come again. Take a moment, prepare your heart in silence before you come to this table. Use the kneelers if you'd like, bow your heads, and take a moment to prepare your heart to come before us.